Let's imagine there's a, a time machine of some sort or fashion. I have no idea what a time machine looks like. But let's say you can get in one and you can set the dial to any time in history, but it's got to be between AD 30 and 33. So basically in the time that Jesus is walking with his disciples. Where would you set the dial? Where would you punch in the dates? What story, what moment, what teaching opportunity would you say, I want to be there in that moment? Was it a healing? When he brought Lazarus back dead? Was it maybe some great teaching moment? Was it when he was walking on the water? Where would you place yourself? Because you want to see it firsthand. But let's imagine something here. Oh, the time machine breaks and you're stuck there. All right. I heard this was an incredible time to be in the presence of Jesus. So here you are. So you could just keep walking with Jesus, being a part of his disciples, his followers. But then with everything you've seen, and it's like, I remember I read about this in church and in my quiet time, I'm seeing it come to life and you're excited, but you know what's coming. You know the emotion of when he's going to be arrested, when he's going to be put on trial, when he's going to be beaten, when he's going to be crucified, when he's going to be buried. And even though you know about it and you read about it, but to see it firsthand, all of a sudden you're just overwhelmed with emotion. And you're like, wow. But then you also know that in a few days he's going to come back. He's going to resurrect from the dead. So again, you're like, you're just waiting and waiting, but yet you see the other disciples like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because I, I, I know I read about it, but they're, they're thinking you're crazy, right? But then you're with them and the women come running into the room. He's like, he's alive. And you're like, I, I knew it. But on their faces, it's a different expression because now they're experiencing the truth that Jesus is alive. And then for the next 40 days, you're with them. Jesus is here, there. He, he eats with them. He, he talks with them and then he's gone and then he arrives again. And, and then after 40 days, you're all together again. And he's like, hey, just want to let you know. I'm going to have to prepare a place for you. So you guys need to go back, back to Jerusalem and, and, and wait, wait for my spirit. And then we know that 10 days later, as we talked about last week in scripture in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit came upon the, the believers. The church was launched, right? Peter's like this uneducated man gets up and preaches to over 3,000 people and 3,000 people are like, we need to repent. We are sorry for our ways. We want Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. And next thing you know, it's one of the greatest revivals ever. And the Holy Spirit just comes. And you're like, yes. I remember reading this. And just like the excitement, right? But we know we can't go back in the time machine to see that. But it is historical. It is history. It is truth. It happened. It's not just a bunch of ideas that were put together. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. It is truth. And here's the thing. We, we didn't live in 3380. We didn't live at that moment when the Holy Spirit came. But the Holy Spirit came and he's still here today. And he's still at work in us. In the scripture, Jesus said this. He goes, in fact, he said, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, which is the Holy Spirit, the counselor, won't come. If I do go away, then I'll send him to you. So he sends the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 8 goes on to say, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He goes on to say in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard, and he'll tell you about the future. 
He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. So Jesus is like telling us the Holy Spirit is going to come. Whatever God says, that's me, that's him. That's, that's the three of us working together. This is the Trinity. You see it right here. He says, because the Holy Spirit dwelling in us now, he convicts us of sin. He reconciles our broken relationship with God. And then he guides us into all truth. We can grow in our faith. We can understand the Bible because of God's spirit at work in us. Now, I know it's the beginning of summer, and I'm going to ask you to rewind back to the cold months, okay? And you're like, no, no, we, we just got here, okay? Just bear with me. We'll get out of there real quick. But I, some of you probably recognize this kind of a picture. You get outside, and your wind, windshield's all frosted up, and you just scrape just enough so you can see, and you get out of your driveway, and it's like, ah, the defrost will kick on. By the time I get a mile down the road, I'll be able to see better. Some of you are like... No, I don't do that, but you're like, I do that, right? Well, I was reading a story about a woman in North Carolina. She was charged with careless driving because she accidentally hit an elderly pedestrian because she had not adequately defrosted her windshield. She couldn't see her, and she got in trouble, right? And I was thinking about this. When our, when our windshields are covered like this, it's, it's, we, we can't see everything. We need help. We need something to defrost and, and open up our vision a little bit more. And that's what I love thinking about as I'm living the Christian life today. I have trouble sometimes understanding God's word. I have trouble sometimes understanding the way this world works in my faith. But the Holy Spirit is like the defroster. The Holy Spirit comes in and, and opens up our eyes to things that maybe we didn't spiritually fully understand. The Holy Spirit brings clarity to things that we are unsure of. It helps us see the, the markers and the guardrails that are out there in life that we need to avoid or be brought to our attention. But here's the thing. Historically, we're not living in the day of Jesus. We're not in that time, time machine that took us back, right? But presently, we are living at a time when the Holy Spirit is walking with us to see the truth and to understand the truth a little bit clearer. And although the, the church was born with reading the book of Acts and community just, just unleashes People are praying together, eating together. They're sharing things generously with one another. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of the church, right? And we talked about that. And, and the Holy Spirit is the unifying force as the Spirit sort of moves through the church body. And it's like, I don't know about you, but you maybe haven't seen somebody for a couple of years, but as a Christian brother or sister, it's like you see them and you feel like you've, it's been hours, not years. Why is that? I believe that's because of the way the Holy Spirit works in us. Well, they gathered daily and they did all that. And they, they had this faith that was anchored in truth. My question is, what kept them from drifting initially? If, if you are a person that has a boat and you go out into deep waters and you have an anchor in your boat, you have that kind of boat, not like a little um, rowboat, okay? But you have something bigger that has an actual anchor on it. You know that you're going to drop anchor so you don't drift because you know the waves, you know the currents can, can pull you away. And, and it, you know, it's like we need to drop anchor so we, we are secure. Spiritually speaking, how do we drop anchor in our faith when the world is pushing against us and the currents of this culture try to sway us in a direction that we don't want to go? And that's what I want to look at. Because I'm concerned about a lot of things that are going on in our world, and, and you probably are too. So I want to address that today over the next few weeks and want to help us 
learn what does it mean to, to anchor our faith? What does it mean to know what you believe and why you believe it? And can you clearly share that with people? Because we need to be able to do that. I was reading in some studies, my concern about the youth, and you've heard these before, like when, when kids graduate from high school and they go off to college, a lot of them never come back. You, you've maybe heard that before. Here's a study that says anywhere between 45 and 48% of youth leave the church after their freshman year in college and never return. So you saw 17 graduates a few weeks ago that were here. Out of those 17, let's say eight of them, maybe nine of them, never come back to church again. Are you okay with that? <laughs> no, especially if you're a parent in here of a graduate. You're like, would one of those kids be mine? I hope not. I thought I raised them right, right? The percentages obviously are based on denomination. And so the problem though, however, is the save. Dave Klineman, another guy, said he found that after age 15, almost 60% of young Christians have disconnected from their church. 60% have disconnected from their church. 54% of high school students attend church, but once they hit college, the problem gets worse. Frequent attendance out of that 54% drops to 44% in high school. Non-attending goes up 20%. I mean, the numbers just basically what I'm saying is critically get worse. One study showed that 70% of teens who attend youth groups stop attending church within two years of their high school graduation. 70%. Again, for the youth leaders in here, are you okay with that? I mean, seven of your 10 kids that were here every Wednesday night, they just unplugged from the church. Why is that? People are, are drifting from their faith. They pulled up anchor and they said, we're just going to drift. We're out of here. Why is that? When you read through the book of Acts, it seems like Christianity was going to be huge, right? I mean, we, we read about that last week, like, this is big. This is a big movement. But then with that big movement, the devil's like, I'm shutting this down. Persecution came to Christians. They were burned at the stake. They were beheaded. They were, they were put in prison. All of a sudden, people are like, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, or I'm going to flee from my town to the next community. So it was like, if that were to happen here in Wauseon, it's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to Delta. But let me explain what happens. It's called a natural evangelism movement. Because, yeah, I've got my faith in what I believe in Jesus Christ, and because I'm leaving this place, and I'm now going to put new roots over in Delta or another community, I'm taking my faith with me. And I'm going to share over now in Delta about my faith. So that's what naturally happened in the book of Acts is as the church scattered, evangelism, the word of Jesus Christ, also spread too. Then you throw in the missionaries and church planters like Peter and Paul and a few others and, and Barnabas. They're, they're out there. We're going to go plant churches. We're going to go. And you read through the New Testament. You got all those little books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians. Those are all little churches, letters to all these churches. And so when you start reading through that and start understanding the devil tried to shut down what was taking place. But God's like, uh, you just fanned the flame. It's getting bigger, right? Which was a great thing. And we need to understand this because the devil's going to try to shut down what the church is doing today. The devil doesn't want the church to thrive. The devil wants the church to be comfortable. Wants us to just sort of move in with the culture of today. In the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, it says this. These are strong words by James. He goes, this is the brother of Jesus. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Ow. When you see what James is saying here, that's strong language. You know what it means to be an enemy? It's deep-seated hatred. It is, is active and open hostility. When you're an enemy of something, you want to take it out. That's the way the word enemy works. And when he says the world, he's referring to a world system, a culture of the world. So when James is writing this, he's saying, hey, the, the cultures and the customs of today, either you have a deep-seated hatred towards it or it has a deep-seated hatred towards you. It goes both ways. Just as a, my friendship with the world means I have some deep-seated hatred towards God, it also means the other way too. If I love God, that means I probably have some deep-seated hatred towards the world, or at least it should be. That's what James is saying. The problem is today, we're comfortable being in either way. You can't tell where people stand because they love the world and they love Jesus. Like, well, that's not scriptural according to what James is saying. James went on, I'm sorry, Jesus went on to say this, when it comes to this, this deep-seated hatred with God or, or with the world, he says, when we place our faith in God, we have a new relationship with him. Jesus says in the book of John, he goes, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, you are my friends since I've told you everything the Father told me. And then now some of us are like, wait, so Jesus is saying that I have a new relationship with God, which means I'm, I'm his friend. So we're buddies, right? And I think some of us take that in the wrong direction too, where we're like, we're buddy-buddy with God and we lose that awe and respect for who God is. You have a relationship with the God of this universe that is a friendship, but he is also God. So there's a lordship there as well. So in that same passage, Jesus goes on to say this again, because if you're friends with God and you're an enemy to the world, he goes on to say this, listen very carefully. He goes, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. Do you hear that? If you've been bullied, if you've been made fun of because of your faith, if you are uncomfortable at times because of your faith, you should. Don't try to make it better. Because Jesus tells us the world hates you. And if you want the world to love you, then it puts you in an awkward position with the God of this universe. Paul, the Apostle Paul even told Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, he goes, everyone who wants to live a godly life, listen to this, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Like, why am I being persecuted? Why am I suffering? You were told, if you're going to follow the life of Jesus Christ, if you're going to worship God, you're going to be different than the world. And you're going to suffer persecution. That's a part of it. You cannot embrace God's way and the ways of the world. You see those, uh, those bumper stickers that say coexist? That can't happen. Sorry. But wouldn't it be great if we could all just get along? Well, we can't because this is God's way. And you want to live opposite of God's way. You can't do that. I understand what they're trying to say. But God's saying somebody's going to hate somebody. This is the way. 
This is the truth. This is the life. No man comes unto the Father God except who? Through Jesus Christ. The enemy, however, wants us to believe that we can. It's okay. Just, you don't always have to follow what God says. Matter of fact, if, if you want to sort of blend in with the culture on occasion, blend. Because the devil's going to whisper in your ear. He won't put it on a big billboard because he's a liar, okay? He's going to whisper in your ear and try to encourage you. Yeah, just, just go ahead and do that. Say that. He's going to smooth talk you just like the serpent did to Adam and Eve. Because if you read through the book of Acts, as incredible as the start it was in Acts chapter 2 with the Holy Spirit, if you start reading through, you're going to realize that false teachers and wrong thinking entered the church. Misdirection, doubt penetrated the church. And as you start reading through the, new, the rest of the New Testament, again, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of those letters and many of those letters are basically letters that were written by the authors to a church that was struggling with probably false direction, bad teaching, false teachers. And the first part of those books are often the first couple chapters, foundation for your faith, and then the next couple chapters are practical living they had to address all the negative stuff that was being infiltrated into the church. So I'm sitting there thinking, why are young people leaving the church? But here's my next question. Why are we leaving the teachings of the church? Because that's what was happening. Christians, not only are we drifting away from the church, we're drifting away from what we believe. For example, three different surveys were taken, conducted by Josh McDowell, Barner Group, and researcher Mike Napa. And they, they discovered this among self-proclaimed teenagers. So these are teenagers who say, I'm a Christian. This is what these kids believe. 41% of them were uncertain whether Jesus was physically resurrected. i got to pause there. 41% uncertain. Four out of ten kids who say, I'm a Christian, I don't think Jesus resurrected from the dead. Then you're not a Christian. You're not. Christianity is based on the truth of who Jesus Christ is and that he resurrected from the dead. If you don't believe in the resurrection, don't call yourself a Christian because you're not. That's, that's the kind of thinking that's going on today. Look at the rest of that. 63% didn't believe Jesus to be the son of the one true God. 44% believe the Bible to be just one of many authoritative voices out there on Jesus. 33% believe that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Although Jesus said himself, I am the way, not a way, the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Oh, that's nice, Jesus. Don't believe it. How do you call yourself a Christian when you're not believing the words of Jesus Christ? Only 5% study the Bible daily. See, the, the, the youth are not only drifting away from the church, but they're also drifting away from Christian truths. And it's not just youth, it's young adults, it's adults. It's become popular now to question faith and to go with what's more popular and acceptable out there. That's scary. It's like walking in, into a, a buffet and here's the lineup of all the food and it's like, these are all the things we should be eating, right? But I'm like, you know what? I like this, don't like that. I like this, don't like that. And that's what people are doing with faith today. 
I like what Christianity says about this, but I like that whole Zen thing. I like that karma thing. I like this other religious thing. So I want a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And it's like, no. That might sound popular and acceptable, but it's not Christianity. Listen very carefully to this. There is no my truth when it comes to God. There is his truth. It is historical. Not a bunch of ideas, historical. It's not what you think Jesus did or did not do. He was, he did it. He said it. The the truth is before us, believe it or not. And the the world is against that. Again, it's like you're in your your little faith boat and the world just keeps crashing and pushing you one direction, another direction. Hey, believe this, think that, act this way, act that way. And you better be anchored in your faith, because the waves get bigger, don't they? And it seems like the more you stand up, the bigger the waves get. Where's the truth? Well, you know, sometimes I have to ask that question because when you think about, like, if I were to ask the question, what's the best diet out there? What's the best exercise program out there? I would probably get about 90 different answers, right? And then I discover somebody saying, okay, that might work for you, but it won't work for that person over there. That exercise program works good for you, but not for you. You know, and it's like, and so, but listen, faith doesn't work that way. Well, your faith works this way. My faith works. Faith doesn't work like a diet program or an exercise program. There has to be something that anchors us true to the truth. And so even the, the disciples were like, listen, you need to be anchored to the truth. So let's, let's start where we started. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So you're partially into the New Testament there. And in 1 Corinthians 15, I, I love how they get out of here and saying, let me remind you what, what our anchoring truths are in our faith. He begins by saying this in verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you'll stand firm in it. It's the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. So he's saying, here, here's my anchor. Here's what is true. Now listen very carefully. He said this, this is what I passed on. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So I'm gonna pause for a second. Because see, back in in these uh, scriptural times, it wasn't like they, they, like the disciples are walking around with their their leather Bibles, like, guys, um, Peter, John, uh, let's open up to John's book. John, okay. John, I think you put in chapter 10. Is that where you wrote it? Okay. They didn't have this. What they had was the historical facts that were before them. And then they shared that with another person and they shared that with another person and they made sure to share all these until they were written. It's almost like for some of you that have that favorite recipe of, your, of a grandparent or grandma, like she's got that, that great recipe for that pie or that cake or that, that dish that you're like, oh yeah. And it's just been passed down from generation to generation. And maybe it's not even written anymore. You just sort of know, a pinch of that, a cup of that, right? Stir, bake, whatever, you know. Maybe you have some of those. In the same way, the truths, the recipe never changes. And the truths of what they believe spiritually was passed down until it was written down. 
So what was passed down? Look at verse 3. He says this. First of all, Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. Verse 4. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. Verse 6. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 7, then he was seen by James, later by all the apostles. Look at verse 8. Last of all, although I was born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So Paul's like, man, I wish I was like with those guys. I was born at the wrong time. But you know what? I still met Jesus face to face on that road to Damascus. What he is saying here is this. We believe the following things. It's been passed down. These are historical truths. One, Jesus died for our sins. That's the atonement. Why did we sing about the blood in that first song? Some people go, ooh, we're really singing about blood, right? If Christ doesn't die, if he doesn't become that ultimate lamb of God, sacrifice for our faith, we have no faith. He was crucified. It was, it was his dying for our sins. He took our place. That's the atonement. Here's the second thing they believed in, and that was Jesus was buried and raised from the dead. His body's not there historically proven to be true. Those two things are huge. And then the third thing, that resurrection, verified with evidence. 500 people saw him here. Well, I'm all at one time. Some of the apostles saw him over here. I saw him. Evidence, truth. That's history of our faith. That's truth. That's foundational truth. So if, if we take the Bible and, and we don't consider it to be true, you will be in conflict with God. If I'm sitting here and saying, well, Genesis chapter 1 through 6, not sure if I really believe that's true. Here's what you're going to have a problem with. You're going to have a problem with the whole gender issue. You're going to have a problem with evolution and creation. You're going to have a problem with sin and the fall, the sinful nature and salvation. You're going to have a problem with a lot of issues, all starting in Genesis 1 to 6. When you hear, and, and here's the thing, um, the, the new Jurassic movie came out and everybody's like, yes, another dinosaur movie. And, and a lot of us like that kind of stuff. But here's, here's a lie that we've been fed and we all believe it. Billions and billions of years ago. Do, do you know billions? Dinosaurs are billions of years. Do you know dinosaurs are thousands of years ago? No, they're not. Yeah, they are. But you don't know that because they won't put it in the book and they won't take them out. Thousands of years. See, if, if our story of creation is thousands of years old, that's in conflict with the world. The world says it's billions of years old. Ah, so who are you going to believe, the Bible or the awesome dinosaur books? Well, there were dinosaurs, but were they thousands of years or billions of years ago? My buddy Mike, you've always heard my caving story. If you've never heard my caving story, I don't know where you're at. You must be living in a cave, okay? So I tell this caving story all the time about my guide. His name is Mike. Mike used to work and go and dig up dinosaur bones up in Alaska and all over the place. They found bones of dinosaurs. They dated them thousands of years, presented their research. Nobody will accept the research. Why is that? Then he'd have to go back and change all these books that say billions of years ago. So again, if you are in conflict with the first couple chapters of the Bible, it causes your direction further down here in life. Are you following me, church? Foundational truth is right here. There's so much more to be said about that, and I'm way off track, and we're wrapping up here. You may think through all of this, can I clearly explain this, though, Rex? Can I, can I clearly explain what I believe to be true in my faith? 
Here's the thing, you may not be able to clearly explain, uh, explain it. You may not have all the answers. You just have to know where to find them. And you can find them in God's word. A lot of people have this assumption that you have to have a seminary degree. You have to have a, a Bible uh, college diploma before you can go tell the people about God. Can I ask you, did they have that in the New Testament? Did any of these disciples go to college? Did, did, they, did they all have Bible diplomas? No, they had the truth in front of them. As I look through and think about what was going on in their time, and, and all the pagan faiths, the ones that did not believe in God, these disciples like, this is what we know is true. This is foundational to our faith. In the midst of all that, Peter sort of stands up and he, he says this, he writes it, it's in his letter. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, and I got two different versions up there. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. ESV says this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And do it with gentleness and respect. Again, remember, Peter was not writing to a classroom trying to tell them how to share their faith. He was writing to us. He's writing to believers. And he's trying to tell us, listen, I want to encourage you. Be ready. Be prepared. I want, are you set? Are you ready to go? Like if something were to happen, are you, are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Somebody comes up to you and they say, tell me about your faith. Are you ready to share with them about your faith? Are you prepared? Are you equipped? A musician, they know they're going to be in a concert. They are practicing. They are preparing. An athlete, they practice and prepare before a competition. A student practices and prepares before a test or quiz. A Christian, we prepare. We prepare. We get into God's word. Always be ready. Always be ready to give an answer. He says here, if you look at the scripture, it says to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason. That word, to, to give an answer or to make a defense, that word is apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics. When you hear about that out in the world today, it's like, well, I want to do a study on apologetics. What are they saying? I want to know what I believe and why I believe it. What do I know about the Bible being true? What do I know about God being God? That's apologetics, Right. And it's not apologizing as some people think, oh, I'm sorry about my faith. No, it's, you're defending your faith, but you're, you're giving an answer to what you believe. So Peter is basically saying, hey, you need to be constantly ready to give an answer for what you believe. Can you do that? And, and, and maybe you're in here this morning saying, I don't know if I can. That's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. I want to equip you. I want to prepare you. I want to help you to be able to stand up and say, this is what I believe and why I believe it. And it's all going to come from God's word. We need to be fully prepared to tell everyone. I'm going to ask the, uh, the worship team to, to come up here at this time. And, and don't make that mistake about thinking, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not been to Bible school, I've not been to college. I don't know if I can, you'll get this. If you can't fully answer the question when somebody asks you about your faith, that's okay. You don't have to always know how it fully works. That's why we have, we call it faith. Okay. I cannot fully explain how electricity works. Okay. But I'm smart enough to know that I don't stick a butter knife in the outlet. Okay. I do know that. Okay. Again, I can't tell you how it all transmits, how it works, where electricity comes from and all that, but I know the power. I cannot tell you everything about the Holy Spirit, but I know the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot tell you everything about the God of our universe, but I know how powerful he is and how great he is. And when I look in the word, sometimes it's like, 
I want to learn about all these other religions, all these other faiths, so I can know how to defend myself. It's like, no, 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 no. Learn about God. Learn about his truth. That's how you point out and pick out a counterfeit dollar. Not by knowing what a fake looks like, but knowing what truth looks like. And you know what truth looks like, then you can look around at all the fakes and say, this is truth. This is what I follow. Now, no, uh, no condemning statement on this. I don't mean to step on any toes on what I'm about ready to say, so please. If you're like, oh, ouch, because I'll be the first to say this, okay? Um, but I was thinking about how we prepare for Christmas. We overspend, we overdecorate. We, we, I mean, we get fired up about Christmas, right? We're getting fired up about what? The coming of Jesus. It's like, yeah, so we, we pour a lot of energy and put a lot of manpower into it and all the decorating. And it's like, that's, that's okay, okay, but here's, here's my point. In 2 Peter 3, 11, it says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives we should be living. Looking forward to that day of God and hurrying along. On that day, he'll set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away the flames. But we, church, listen, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth that he's promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living practical, holy lives. Make every effort. Man, we get fired up for Christmas and we prepare in months in advance, right? Are we preparing for the second coming of Jesus? Are you eager and ready for that? Are you ready to share your faith with another person? And if you're not, that's okay. Let's get there. Be ready to give an answer. We'll help you over this over the next few weeks to equip you. I'm excited about this. I hope you are too because we need to be able to give an answer. This world is going to rock your boat. We better be anchored and we better be ready. Would you stand please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day in which we can worship you. I thank you for this moment. I thank you for your words of truth. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit that is, is in our lives that indwells us to, to convict us and to open our eyes to maybe things that we have been wishy-washy on, where we've been drifting. God, give us a new passion for your word, for truth. Give us, Lord, a desire to want to anchor into the foundation of your word. God, clear our, our minds and our hearts from maybe some, some customs and things of this world in which we've grown used to and we say, well, that's acceptable. But we know that the spirit, your spirit within us has been convicted saying, that's not acceptable. God, we do not want to see any more of our kids, our youth, drifting away from the church, drifting away from their faith, nor any young adult or adult in here do we want to see ourselves drifting away from you. God, may your truths be evident in our life and may we be anchored to them. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your truth. We love you, Lord. We want to sing to you now. In thy name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.